Good morning. My name is Ron, and I have the honor of continuing our study of Job. We're in our second week of a three-part series of Job, and uh, John asked me a bit ago to to preach Job, and I, I sure, uh, just let me know the passage, and he got back with the passage, and he says 4 to 31, thinking 4, chapter 4, verse 31, but not John. John is extra in every way. So <laughs> today, I'm going to preach chapter 4, through chapter 31. It's also about the problem of evil in the world. How do we justify a good God with evil things? And just for measure, I might as well throw in God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Anything else there, Ransom, uh, you need me to do while I'm up here? Where is God when bad things happen is certainly an important topic. It's an important topic for all of us to ask. And it's one of those topics that You don't have to be encouraged to ask. You've already asked that sometime in your life. The theological term for justifying a good God with evil things in the world is theodicy. And in our theodicy, we want to be able to see how these two things work together. We want to develop a theology of suffering. My theology of suffering perhaps started theoretically in the 90s when I used to buy and sell used books. In the buying and selling of used books, I came across this book, Ellie Vassell's Night. Have you read this before? Raise your hand if you've read this. It's a staple in 10th grade English class or so. In here, a 15-year-old Ellie Vassell went to a concentration camp, and it's his first-person narrative of his experience with not only his experience in the concentration camp, but in his fight against God in how does a good God allow this to happen to good people? And so in Ellie Vassell, I went to this, uh, I found this book by buying an entire library. I went to someone's house, they were selling a library. They just wanted them all gone. I was like, why, whose books are these? Well, it's my roommates, he used to be a Methodist priest, but he quit to join Amway and now he's moving to Ohio to sell Amway. I was like, problem of evil indeed. well, in this book, as I read Ellie Vassell's Night, I, was, I brought all these books back to my living room and sorted them out as to where I was going to sell these books. I found this book, and I had heard of it. I was a youth pastor at the time, and I, I heard about this book, so I just paused with all the pile sorting, and I just sat on the couch, and I read Night from cover to cover. And I can say, even today, and this is 20-whatever years later, that this is still in my top five most impacting books of my life because it did something for me to at least see the honest question of God, why? Why are you allowing this? And there's a scene, if you've read the book, it's a very profound scene where Ellie Vassell, one of his uh, fellow prisoners, a younger boy, eight, 10-year-old boy, uh, he was caught stealing soup. And so the guards, to make an example out of him, brought him to the front of the big field parade area and made... Well, I won't say it just because kids are in the audience, but what they did to that boy publicly and they made everybody watch it, it was horrifying. And everybody, were, they were all silent except Ellie Vassell heard a cry out. Someone said, where is God? And Ellie Vassell's heart burned at that moment and he says to himself, where is God? There he is. He's on the gallows dying. And Ellie Vassell just had a lifelong struggle with how do we justify these two things. 
he was an impactful man in my life. I went to Boston University and I studied under Elie Vassell and I just really have a lot of appreciation for the questions. Where is God when life hurts? Because I don't necessarily need a book to tell me that. We have life that tells us that. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. Uh, in, in our uh, sermon today, I call this the sick and his worthless physicians. We are all had those moments of sickness, of suffering, and we have these physicians that come into our life and try to offer counsel. Whatever our sicknesses are here in our congregation that we can relate to, whether it's marriage issues or parenting issues, disease, death, finances, employment, depression, persecution, we all have those moments in our life where we can say, God, why? There has to be something, God, you have to have a reason for this. It doesn't make sense. And think about that time. Think about that time in your life, perhaps the darkest time in your life where you have asked that very question. I know I have those in my life. We've all been Job's to a lesser degree in need of comfort, in need of comfort from God and crying out for comfort, but also need for comfort from friends. Where are our friends to give us comfort? We need help. That's what we'll explore today. And our thesis statement for the message, our main idea is this. We as Christians have the pastoral privilege to be the hands and feet of Jesus to comfort those around us in suffering situations. We have the pastoral privilege to be the hands and feet of Jesus to comfort those around us who are in suffering situations. Because people around us are suffering. One thing that I know, and the older I get, this becomes more true, is that everybody has something right now. On the count of three, you're gonna yell it out, ready? I'm just kidding, but we, we all could, couldn't we? We all have something that I don't have to have you probe your mind any further. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the time where I had to say, God, why? This doesn't make any sense. And so in our text today that we're gonna look at, we're gonna see the opposite of this thesis statement unfold, the opposite of it. So just a little recap uh, that John gave us last week with his, uh, I think it was four verses he had to preach. Uh, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, he has a great life. God says he's blameless and upright. Satan says, of course he is. Look what he has. He is good marriage, good kids, good property, good stuff. Who's not gonna praise you? And so God gave Satan authority to take that away. And that's what Satan did. Satan went and his, the Chaldeans, plundered his property and took his property. A typhoon of sorts comes in and kills all 10 of his children. And he's sitting there crying. And Job still says, the Lord gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? We just sang that. And so God, again, as a proud dad that he is, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless and upright. And Satan says, yes, but that's because he has his health. If you take away the health, it all goes. So God says to Satan, okay, go ahead and you may touch him, but you can't take his life. And so Satan brought sores from head to toe. Job was left on the ground with nothing. His wife even cries out, curse God and die. Get this over with nice spousal support here. Uh, And so curse God and die. This is where our narrative begins. At this moment, 
Job's three friends come sauntering in. Let's take a look here uh, at this here. So we're in Job 2. It says, now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each to his own place, Eliphaz the Terminite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this terrible experience from Job in all three areas, death of children, health issues, financial ruin, Job's friends, the three of them, come over and sit with him for seven days because they saw that his suffering was great. In this phrase, no one spoke a word to him. If this is where it ends, if this is where the text ends, the sermon would be over here. It would say, be like Job's friends. Find the suffering, sit, comfort, and keep your mouth shut because sometimes what we say gets in the way. But these three friends open their mouths and what we have is now 22 chapters of bad theology and comfortless words that are going to fly at us like a torrent. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The main text is this collection of bad theology that we're going to look at. In the council, in well-meaning friends coming to Job to comfort him, they open their mouths and the comfortless words come out. Here's how Job's, the, the book of Job is structured. It's structured in these four Three different cycles, 22 chapters in this dialogue section, structured like this. Elphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. We have 11 chapters of that first cycle. The second cycle, Elphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. That's going to be seven chapters, so a little bit less talking. The third cycle follows a similar format. Elphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. And it ends there. So far does not talk, so far as I know. Thank you. I paid someone in there to laugh to make sure it's... (laughs) So in this collection of words, you can almost see the words start to shrink. We go from 11 chapters to seven to four, word, four chapters here that the words get less. They're running out of hot air to say. And you're gonna see two over, over. You're just getting my joke now? <laughs> Here's what I want you to watch for as we're going to, did you need to explain it to a few more people? I, I think this side needs a little. Uh, Uh, We're going to look at two things here. Uh, We're going to see a commonality of some of these responses. We're going to see, one, that the three friends have this theology that says something like this. Job, you sinned. God punishes sin. So stop sinning. Repent, and you'll be better. That's the theology we're going to hear. And then we're also going to hear that the suffocation of words, lots of words coming to those who are suffering just increases the suffering. It doesn't ease the pain. Here's how we're going to read this. There's 22 chapters and we're going to read every single one of them. We'll be here to four today. Uh, I have taken some choice uh, phrases that captures each of our speakers that we're going to read through relatively quickly 
Uh, and then um, my boy Leroy, back, I mean uh, Levi back there is gonna try to keep up here as I'm gonna read these through. And I want you to just get a sampling of what the friends are saying. Are you ready? Here we go. First cycle, Eliphaz speaks first. Remember who that was innocent ever perished or were the were upright cut off. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Job replies now to Eliphaz, the, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. It would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. We move to Bildad. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Behold, God would not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. You're not one of those. You're a blamed man. Job replies to this. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? To God, Job says, does it seem good to you to oppress and despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Your hands have fashioned and made me, God, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Zophar comes in here. He says, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Our Bible headers for this section, it really says, you deserve worse. If God passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, would he not consider it? You are one of those worthless men, Job. Job replies to this, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. You are so wise. What would we do without your wise words? For I have understanding as well as you and I am not inferior to you. But I will speak to the almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your argument. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. What you tell me is not helping. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. We move now to the second cycle. Eliphaz returns. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days. I'm noticing that's what you're doing, Job. Through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless, Job responds, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct, the graveyard is ready for me. Bildad now comes in. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous like your house, Job. Such is the place of him who knows not God. I don't think you know him, Job. To this, Job replies, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. And are you not ashamed to wrong me? For I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. 
Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. We move to our last cycle. Eliphaz comes back. Is not your evil abundant? Job, there is no end to your iniquities. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have, not, you have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. Eliphaz's final comment is this. Agree with God, be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice, far from your tents. Job replies, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even be given to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Therefore, I am terrified at God's presence. When I consider, I am in dread of God. Bildad speaks. His final comment is an unhelpful and unanswered question. Well, how then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Well, how are we to know anything, he says. Job replies for the final time. Oh, that I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone above my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes." I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me, God, and with the might of your hand, God, you persecute me. That is the end of the three cycles of Job's argument, his dialogue with his friends and counselors. You've seen, as I mentioned, that the theology is that you've done something wrong. That is why you're paying the price. And just repent. It's easy, Job. It's very simple. It's clear you're sinning. Well, here's kind of the logical syllogism that our three friends are operating under. The first one is that God is good. We can all agree with that one. The second premise we also agree with, God punishes sin and wickedness. Well, the third one is what the friends do. Honestly, the friends do this. God is good. God punishes weaknesses. And if you are suffering, you then must be wicked. That's where the premise goes. God's good. God punishes sin. If you're suffering, there is a direct correlation that you must be wicked. And we we see this as well, the flip side of this, where we can say this logical syllogism, God is good. God blesses good people. And if you are not suffering, you must be blessed by God. I am so blessed, I'm not suffering. Look at how good, look at my bank account, look at my happy family, look at my property, look at how I'm succeeding at work. Therefore, I am sinless. What the theology of suffering that these men do is break it up apart, is make it so cause and effect. Are you suffering? 
you must be sinning. Repent, it's over. Are you living well? Rejoice, you are holy and righteous. Good work for you. We see the same thing. We see a snapshot of this with Jesus as uh, the man who was born blind walked by Jesus and his disciples said, Jesus, hey, just tell me this nice little intellectual question as we talk about theology. Uh, Who sinned, his parents or the kid? Which one? He was born blind, so tell me, which one? It's only one of these two. That's the only thing. And this is the same thing that the three friends do to Job. Only two things can be. Either you sin and you're punished or you're good and you have a life of freedom and ease. Well, this is insidious theology that exists even today. And it's not just the TV preachers who preach health and wealth and prosperity for those who follow God. There is nothing in the Bible that guarantees us health and wealth and prosperity by our connection to God and our holiness. This is a reap what you sow type of gospel, and it has no place in the gospel. It is an overly simplistic look of pain and suffering. And if you tell somebody who is actual in suffering that message, that would cause more suffering. That's what happens to Job. Now, we know Job was a good man. He was blameless. He's not sinless, but he's a, not a hidden sin man. He was a right man. He lived rightly. He lived uprightly with other people. He was told that he is blame. We're told that he's blameless and a man of integrity. And in literature, there's this concept called dramatic irony. And that is where we, the reader or the viewer, know something that a character does not. And that differences of what I know versus what a character knows creates a tension, creates a, this uh, opposite view, point of view, so that it cre- it's comedy or horror or suspense or something. And the best example of this is, are the horror movies that uh, you may have seen uh, where the madman kind of breaks into the house, runs up the stairs, hides behind a door, and the innocent teenager is walking up the stairs and she's trying to get away from the guy, but we know that he's behind the door and we scream out to the screen, don't go up there, don't go up there, he's right there, he's gonna get you. That dramatic irony gives us that tension. Well, we see that same dramatic irony here in Job where we know that he's blameless and upright. All of the counselors are coming to Job and telling him, you must have sinned, you must have sinned. We wanna yell at these friends, no, it's not true. Listen to us, speak truth and comfort Job, you knuckleheads. You are wrong about this man. Comfort him for crying out loud. But they don't. They don't see that. And their words, their many words, and their bad theology continues to cause more suffering for the man who has already lost literally everything in his life. Well, what does this look like for us today? How, does, how can we look at this? What does this do for us? Well, we have periods of suffering. And re- remember those uh, periods that you had, that one period that you had, and think about the people who have come your way, the counselors who have come your way and spoken into your life. Now, I have some that, that stick out for me. I mean, there could be a, a breakup, loneliness, our struggles with infertility, perhaps even the, our current family issues that we're dealing with, that we could say that this is a form of suffering, and you have an idea of suffering, whatever that is, with your marriage or your parenting or miscarriages. Fill in the blanks is that you have your idea of suffering. Most people don't come up to us today and go, oh, you're, uh, someone broke up with you? You must be sinning. You must, you must have, you, repent, and then God will bring back the girl or the guy. No, people don't say that. But they still have that same mentality, this reap what you sow, the if-then 
God in our life. If I do this right, then my life is happy. So people don't say that I sinned, but they do have other things that we say that does not help our situation. It does not help or alleviate the pain and our suffering. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they come into our lives trying to comfort whoever our comforters are, but they curse instead. People in our life, when they start to address our suffering, they are those worthless physicians that bring no healing. They only bring condemnation. I want to tell you about three snapshots in, in my own life and how counselors, I think, got it wrong. I had uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in my life of sorts. And the, the first one uh, was when we were, Christy and I were dating and she broke up with me. It's a long story. Actually, it's not a long story. Christy broke up with me, period. There, there's the story. That's it. Uh, uh, but after that moment, uh, loneliness and feeling worthless, I felt like God was silent to all of my requests for this time period. And I went to my friend Noah, and Noah had recently married Stephanie. And I went to, I went to Noah's house, and he was a Christian friend, and I needed some relief in some way. And so I sat with Noah and we were talking and just trying to, you know, telling him all the stuff that was going on in my heart, just feeling that suffering and needing someone to carry that with me, carry that burden alongside me. And Noah kind of interrupted me and he's like, I don't want to make you jealous, but Stephanie and I are doing awesome. Seriously, <laughs> marriage is great. And I don't know, is that making you jealous? Are you okay? No, I'm fine. Uh, so, so we have that idea that I'm sure he didn't intend for that to happen. But really, I think about that a lot. And, you know, I, I'm being passive aggressive. I hope you listen to this uh, somewhere on podcast. <laughs> uh, fast forward a little bit here. Christy came to her senses and agreed to marry me. And, uh, and so during our kind of ours, I, I would put our season of infertility uh, in this time of suffering. Uh, it's where you ask God those important questions. Why? Why, God? Um, what is going on here? And those of you who have been through a season of infertility, you realize one truth, and that is that everyone around you seems to be hyper-fertile. Uh, and so lots of babies, lots of excitement around babies, as there should be. But oftentimes, we've heard this phrase when people are holding babies, like, I'm so blessed. Look, look at the baby. I'm just so blessed. And for someone struggling with infertility, they're on the other side of that newborn. And when they hear that is, I'm so blessed, what does that couple hear? I am so cursed. And so the idea, there's nothing wrong with that phrase, I'm so blessed. But honestly, I have removed that from my language when I'm trying to say I have this good thing happen, happening to me because we, we almost ransack that word blessed and just mean that, hey, this is a good thing in my life. Well, God uses hard things in our life to bless us as well. And I think in a lot of my hard situations, looking backward, I say, wow, that was a blessing. And so I really hesitate this idea of I'm so blessed. And so especially when you say that, whether it's about children or marriage or finances, when you hear that, the other side is true. I sat with a couple of teachers this week. We were at this table talking about finances and trying to get a, a handle on, on uh, debt. And this one teacher was almost in tears talking about, I owe 
over $100,000, I think it was $190,000, $190,000 in school loans, credit cards, her kids' loans, she took out Parent PLUS loans, uh, just swimming in debt, tears, lost, has no idea what to do. The other side of the table, there were three of us, the other teacher just said, oh, you know what I did? I, I just, I applied for this and, and I just, I, we have so much money because my husband makes so much money. We're putting away so much money. And so it's just gonna be great because you, know, you should maybe look into that, but you know, saving more money, save more money. And then we can pay off. I mean, we're paying like $1,000 a month on a 300. We're gonna pay this off in no time. And I really, I saw this woman sitting next to me crushed. This woman is saying, I'm so blessed. I have all this great income. And this woman, at this moment, at this time, that is not what this woman needs to hear. Yes, she needs to hear wisdom. Yes, all of these things, that we could help her and walk with her in that. But that is not the time to say something to somebody who is suffering. My friend Noah, infertility, and then we look today just with some current struggles that we have with parenting and fatherhood, feeling ineffective, feeling like a failure. A lot of you, uh, I've talked to you about this in different ways. Uh, but there's a different kind of comforter that comes our way during this time. Two, um, about two years ago or so is where we started to have this, uh, let's just say, a tough time in our, in our life. And two of our best friends that we told about two years ago now have comforted us like Job's friends by saying nothing, silent. Not the good silent where someone comes alongside of us and walks in our pain, but the kind of silent that makes you feel unimportant and uncared for by people. So we have these counselors of sorts in our life, and in these three particular cases, there doesn't seem to be someone who can speak truth through our suffering. In all three of these stories that I told you, it highlights the suffering. It doesn't help it. Like Job, when this is the kind of comfort you receive in your suffering, it moves your heart further away from God onto your circumstances even more. So in these three cycles that we saw, Job moves further away from trusting and rejoicing in God and moves further away to, toward questioning God. When you have comments from these worthless physicians, the health of our faith becomes anemic. It doesn't become closer to God. And so this is where we are today, is that how can we be the kind of physicians in people's suffering that makes their faith less anemic and more connected to God? Which is why we're, we're looking at this, uh, this thesis here as we look that we can be the ones to have the pastoral privilege for walking alongside people in their suffering. If you have those counselors in your life that you didn't like to hear, I mean, the ones that I've told you, they did not bring life to me. In fact, they discouraged me in so many ways. How can we act? And I wanna tell you about the, this is the easiest way to act toward people who are in suffer, who are suffering. And it's the six-year-old test. We have a six-year-old, Grace, and she learned this week to ride a bike. Look at that. Proud, proud moment, proud dad moment there. Now, as Grace is learning to ride a bike, like all kids do, they fall. So if our child falls and is in pain, and for a six-year-old, that is unbearable suffering, uh, the, Grace is there crying because she fell down and hurt herself. Think about how we as adults comfort other Christians in suffering. Let, let's pretend we, we do that to a kid. And so first, I could have taken the preaching approach. Well, Grace, this falling is good for you. All falling works together for the glory of God. 
Would that have helped your suffering? No. This is my favorite one as a, as a, as a parent. Um, I could have condemned. You should have taken that curve. Not so fast. Like I told you, I was right. It's your fault. Uh, that's the one that I think is my default position. That doesn't do any good for anybody's suffering. How about comparing? Grace has fallen on the ground. She's crying, and I go up to her, and it's like, Grace, I don't want to make you jealous, but when I was six, I won a trophy for not falling, okay? They were given trophies for not falling. That would not help anybody. Or silence. She falls, she cries, I walk away looking at my phone because after all, it's none of my business. I don't want to interfere. You know, whenever she's ready, she'll come to me if she needs help. I have a good Bible verse for her. Uh, All of those, I mean, those are ridiculous to think about for a six-year-old, but yet that is how we approach our fellow Christians. One of those areas, we preach to them, we condemn them, we compare them uh, to me, or we don't say anything because we don't want to bother them in some capacity. These are ways to avoid comforting the hurting. So if it works for a six-year-old, it should work with the Job's in our midst today. Now, if we're to not do that, what should we do? Here's what we should do as we look at how we approach those who are struggling. It's why I love the concept of the problem of evil. I don't have an answer, like a lot of people don't have an answer, but I know that it is my responsibility as a Christian to encourage, comfort, and pursue people in, who are hurting. And that's why I like this topic, because I need that pursuit, and I know you need that pursuit from somebody. So here's how we can pursue First, we can be bold in approaching somebody in need. We can lean in and pursue those who are having a hard time. Ask appropriate questions, not nosy ones, but if you know that somebody is struggling with blank, whatever the blank is, don't be shy, go to them. Nobody is going to pursue you. If you are suffering, you know what this is like. If you feel like you are really hurting about something, chances are you are not going to find somebody to go and get help. But if you had friends who knows something wrong, something's wrong, they'll pursue you. And so let's do that same thing. Let's watch for the people in need that we can pursue and help. I would say avoid meaningless responses. I've already told you about I'm blessed, um, how I, I just don't like that. If your sentences start with, well, if it were me, or you know what you should do, if that's what your sentence, your counsel sounds like, stop talking. In fact, just go away. Um, or perhaps the more, more relevant one that we do today in a text, praying, exclamation mark, prayer hands emoji. Uh, you know, let's do something more substantial. You may love that, but let me just tell you, I'm gonna brag on myself a little bit. I have never used an emoji in my life. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll pause for applause. Thank you. Uh, The idea of when somebody is suffering, there may be an apt text that can come their way. I know that I've I've been on the recipient of really good text. I guarantee you those texts didn't just say, praying, uh, because that wouldn't do it for me. Rather than the prayer hands emoji, give me a real hand on my shoulder. Give me that. Uh, And that would alleviate suffering more than an emoji. This is one here, a good principle. Avoid coffee cup Bible verses in place of meaningful conversations. Good rule of thumb, if you've ever seen this verse on a bumper sticker or a coffee cup, 
don't give it to somebody in suffering, while they're suffering. Doesn't mean it's not true. So all things work together for good for, God, for those who God loves and is called according to his purpose. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and consider it a joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. All of those are true and right and needed and we, we want to hear those and we need to have those verses wash over us. But it's all about timing. Sometimes we use those verses as to keep people at arm's length. You tell me that you're suffering about something and I give you eight, Romans 8.28. I'm just keeping you. Hey, here, there, God works all things good. Good luck with that. Let me know how it goes. Uh, prayer hands. Uh, and so the idea is that those are important, but don't let that be the first or the last thing people hear from you. That is not going to help somebody who's truly suffering. And then our last one that we could, we could do to make meaningful comforters of ourselves is to be a model after Job's friends, the kind in chapter two, before they started talking, is that sometimes we need to remain present and silent and walk with someone through a hard time and shut our mouths. We talk too much. And if you want to know if it's you that you talk too much, the answer is yes, you talk too much. Everyone talks too much in times of suffering. Maybe we need to listen more, pray more, or better yet, just sit next to somebody more. Our comforting of others in their need should cost us. It should cost us rides to the hospital. It should cost us time on the phone in inconvenient hours because our friends are at different time zones. It should cost us time away from things I love and not pursue the television, but I have to pursue a person instead. We have the ability, Pillar, to speak life and truth into someone during their darkest of days. We get to do that. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar made Job's heart worse and weaker, not stronger and closer. We get to bring people out of despair. God can use us for that. I asked uh, our friends in RMC, tell me a story in which somebody, you've been in a suffering situation and somebody gave you those words of comfort versus the words like Job's friends. And one of our uh, family members told us about when their daughter was still unborn, uh, the doctors diagnosed her as trisomy 18, uh, with trisomy 18, and this baby is gonna die, and even if the baby lives, it's not gonna be long, and it's gonna make your lives terrible. Abort this baby, really. That's common sense. Just get an abortion. This family, and they've talked about this situation before, just terrible days, terrible days during this. And we were talking months since the diagnosis to the birth. However, she said that our friends at small group continued to walk with us through this. They didn't ignore it. They pursued it. They walked. They prayed. They comforted. They gave the scripture verses. They were present with them. Now, this, all this comfort led to a very happy baby and healthy baby uh, that is running around Pillar today. I mean, literally today. They were in first service but this cute little girl is running around today almost as a, a testament for encouragement. <clears throat> and I just think that that family, they will tell you, I talked to him after service yesterday, I mean, last service, and just talking to me about it again, and this was five, four years ago, he's like, his, he's like, look at my arm. He had goosebumps all over again. 
just by talking about this. The way that people spoke comfort into this family's life is going to resonate for, that, for the rest of this little girl's life. They're gonna hear that story again and again. This girl is gonna grow up to be a mom who's gonna tell that story again and again because of words of encouragement and walking through suffering with a family in need. I have a friend who texts me, I think I'm on an automatic calendar reminder, and I don't care, I'm taking it. Uh, he texts me regularly about our current difficult situation. He knows everything about it. And he just sends me these random, random comments. Ron, you're a great dad. Keep it up. Uh, here's a Bible verse. And it's not just a Bible verse. So I'm not against sending people Bible verses. But it's not just a Bible verse. It's like, I thought of you this morning. I prayed for you this morning. I want you to know that I'm fighting for you. Can you imagine what those words mean to somebody who is suffering? I am fighting with you about this. Man, that's encouraging. <clears throat> Make me tear up here. Uh, now, in light of the, all of these truths, what would our church look like if we were more serious about seeking out those who need comforting? What would we do if we took seriously that we are the hands and feet of Jesus to be able to comfort those in need? And we looked for opportunities. May God show us these opportunities because they're here. We all are struggling with something. Again, the gamut is all the same. Marriage, parenting, finances, health, death, depression, employment. I don't know. I, I think we all have the same. Everyone falls in that area. Let's seek out people to be able to talk to them and to comfort them. Last week, John closed his sermon with this powerful passage that I wanted to use. He was talking about Jesus is the better Job, and he mentioned that Jesus is the better friends as well. And I want to replay this here. Ransom says this, Job had, a good but in, had good but inadequate friends in his suffering. Jesus is the true and better friend in our suffering. He is there. He redeems. He refines. He rescues. He restores. He sustains. He comforts. He holds. He listens. He helps. He speaks good words. He always brings us back home to our Father. And pillar, Jesus uses us, regular people like you and me, to accomplish his purposes in suffering. That is something that we should take very seriously. Last week, John introduced you perhaps for the first time to Joni Erickson Tada. She was a 17-year-old due to a diving accident, broke her neck that left her a quadriplegic for the last 50 years now. In an interview, she explained how comforting someone in the midst of suffering really should look. I've heard this, I heard this interview about five years ago, maybe six years ago, and I really think of this every single day. I'm not exaggerating. Joni Erickson says this, as after the accident, immediately after, she's in the hospital for months. She says this, one night, my, my high school friend Jackie came into the hospital late one night, like two in the morning, past visiting hours. The nurses were on break. No one was in the hallway. She crept up the steps of the hospital, snuck in the back way, came into my six-bed ward. My friend came sneaking into the room, crawling on her hands and knees. She came over to my bed, stood up slowly, and lowered the guardrail of the hospital bed. Just like high schoolers do on pajama sleepovers, she climbed into bed next to me, snuggled real close, and softly began to sing, Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. 
I get choked up thinking about this 45 years later. She gave me something that night that was priceless. She helped me encounter Jesus Christ in a warm and personal way. That's how precious the body of Christ is to healing the hearts of those who are hurting, to come up close to them, to infuse into their spiritual veins life, hope, healing, health. That's what Jackie gave me that night. She gave me Jesus in a real and personal way. That's really what I needed. Don't you dare be caught rejoicing with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Let the people here at Pillar be the ones who counted a privilege to crawl into the hospital beds to comfort the suffering and hopeless as we point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all of your comforting. We thank you that you have given us a body here, Lord, to serve and serve well your people. I pray that you would give us opportunities to see and to crawl into hospital beds with those who need it. Help us to serve you by serving these people well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.